Peace be with you. Light. Uh, Eugene Peterson had a friend named Ed Jackson who told uh, uh, him this experience from when he had been in jail. Quote, uh, in the middle of the night, I woke up and my cell was full of light, a kind of pulsating light. It lasted maybe five minutes. It seemed like a long time. And, and then it was dark again. I was still in my bunk wondering what had happened. And then it came to me, I think I'm a Christian. But I have no idea what that means, end quote. Light, pulsating light. In 1990, Nelson Mandela emerged from 26 years in the Robben Island and Poolsmore prison. Uh, Art Van Cedars, uh, who's a former professor of mine, described uh, what it was like when the cameras were on and described what uh, Nelson Mandela looked like. He says, his spirit was filled with light. The depth of his faith became evident to the world as he radiated a posture of uncommon grace. Light. His spirit was filled with light. That's the word that describes what he was like. A man died in a rodeo accident. He was still in the ring, and so medical professionals came out to uh, help him, uh, to assist him. Uh, his heart had stopped, but they're working on him. And uh, one person decides, you know, I, I should pray, and starts to pray for this individual in the rodeo ring and realizes, wait a second, there's a whole bunch of people here. I should call out to other people and start to, hey, hey, we need to pray for this person. And so all of a sudden, 10, 20, 30, 50, hundreds of people start praying for this guy whose heart has stopped in the rodeo ring. A little while later, uh, the man's heart started to beat again. When the man collected himself, he told an incredible story that as he was dying, he sensed that he was in the presence of God looking down on the rodeo. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole discussion about near-death experiences. We'll talk about that for another day. This is the experience he relates, looking down on the rodeo, and God allowed him to see all the prayers of these people rising upwards, to see them. Each prayer, he said, was going up like a bolt of light, hundreds of bolts of lightning going upwards as prayers. When talking about faith, the concept of light comes up a lot, right? And it's not just like flick the switch kind of light. It's metaphorical language for something. And uh, when we talk about the light of God, usually it's about the presence of God. Usually it's about the wisdom of God, like light to the path, or uh, guidance of God, or the goodness of God, or the blessings uh, of God. And we think about Jesus, we certainly think about light, right? Because he says that he is the light of the world. Absolutely. But just as Jesus teaches us about light, he also teaches us about darkness. Uh, and there's an American author named Frederick Beekner who, who says it very well. He says this, Jesus shares with us the darkness of what it is to be without God, as well as showing forth the glory of what it is to be with God. So today we're going to explore both, which will give us a greater appreciation, one, for his light, and will encourage us, to to walk in that light. And three, be warned against the encroaching darkness, which is very real. All right. So the text we're going to do that is uh, in John's Gospel, chapter 12. And so if you've got your Bible and you want to open it up, uh, we're going to turn right there. I'm reading from the ESV. And remember that this is a line-by-line -line look through the Gospel according to John. And we do well to remember that uh, this isn't just some random person. This is one of the apostles. He walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He was there. And so not only was he there as an eyewitness, but uh, later, and we'll explore this text later in, in John chapter 14, 
<laughs> just the Holy Spirit actually helps the apostles remember uh, what Jesus taught them. So not only was he there walking with them, talking with them, the Holy Spirit, God himself, and the person of the Holy Spirit helps him remember with accuracy. So it's just an incredible blessing that we have these stories. And so the immediate context is, remember that there's Passover, so the reason that Jesus and the apostles have gathered at uh, Jerusalem is, is his final week on earth uh, as part of his earthly ministry. And uh, it's the Passover festival, that annual remembrance of when God liberated the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. And so that's what's going on there. They're there. Uh, but it's also the last week of, you know, before Jesus' torture, uh, death, and, and crucifixion. And so in the, in, in the story immediately previous, so the temperature is getting hotter, right? It's rising in Jesus. Things are getting more intense. People are seeking his life actively. Um, the, the story immediately before this, which we looked at last week, uh, those Greeks were looking to talk to Jesus. Uh, and he responds with a very intense line, he says in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world, meaning separates himself from the selfish priorities in this world, whoever does that will keep it for eternal life. And he's also talking about his uh, glorification. So on this language will come up again. So when Jesus talks about being glorified in this sense, uh, he's talking about being raised up on the cross. And there's, it's, it's kind of interesting there, the language, because a lot of people will look on him and be like, that's, that's shameful. This is the moment of your greatest defeat, Jesus. But of course, we know that what others think is his humiliation is actually his glorification uh, because God is using that event uh, to, to help all of us, to give us peace and forgiveness with God. He dies in our place that we might be you know, made right with God. So it's the ultimate moment of victory, actually, and people don't realize that yet. Anyway, so we continue at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. This is Jesus talking. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. <laughs> But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Now, what is, what is meant here? So previously, as we've been going through, you've noticed that sometimes Jesus has said, my hour is not yet. And so, some, you know, you know, so he kind of, kind of backs out of a situation or whatever. Now he says his hour is here. So what is meant by his hour? Well, this refers to that difficult but decisive moment of victory. A difficult but decisive moment of victory, his hour. And he's referring to what he will accomplish on the cross and through the empty tomb for the rest of us, born to die that we might live. And I want to share an illustration I shared last week because I really think it brings out uh, the gravity, the power, the significance of what Jesus means by his hour. And it was appropriate last week because it was Remembrance Sunday and we had the act of remembrance and the laying of the wreath and, and, and all that. Uh, and it was about D-Day. So uh, D-Day, June 6, 1944, was when uh, the Allies, you know, launched this, you know, on the beaches of Normandy, launched, launched this offensive. Huge, huge loss of life. And uh, it's estimated that about, uh, in the first 24 hours alone, uh, more than 9,000 Allied soldiers lost their lives. Over 9,000 in the first 24 hours alone. So that was a, that was a huge thing. But historians look back on that and they say, you know what, that was the decisive moment that tipped the scales in favor of the Allies. So after D-Day, there, uh, there were still battles, there were still skirmishes, but really, people know that the scales had been tipped, right? And so it was only a matter of time before there would be V-Day, Victory Day. So here's, here's the comparison. So the cross, what Jesus accomplishes on the cross and through the empty tomb, that's, that's D-Day. That's that difficult but decisive moment of victory which tips the scales, right, against sin, death, darkness, evil in the world, okay, for good, 
for the purposes of God. So V-Day is like the return of Jesus. That's when the victory is all out in the open, everything's wonderful, and we see how the new heavens and the new earth comes in. That's the, that's the ultimate victory, finally made new for everyone. But, but D-Day, right, is that difficult, difficult, but it's that decisive moment of victory. And so we think of how Jesus feels, just how those soldiers must have felt preparing to jump out onto the beaches of Normandy, how intense that must have been. So is Jesus here experiencing soul trouble. My soul is troubled, he says, as he prepares for that decisive moment in victory on the cross. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. It was so big, people think something's going on. It's like thunder has come from the sky. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Right, so it's like the voice confirms the message of Jesus. The voice confirms the mission of Jesus. So let's say you are, um, you're working uh, on a car, um, <clears throat> and you're talking to your friend, but you've been working on it with your friend's dad. And this is a 1953 Chevrolet 210 sports sedan. Like, when you look at old cars, that's like a classic. A 53 Chevrolet 210 sports sedan. And your friend's like, I don't believe it. <laughs> and uh, then, then all of a sudden, you know, your dad comes. and Like, oh, no, it's true. You know, I've been doing this in the afternoons on Saturday when you've been out golfing with your mom. So, th so the presence of the father uh, confirms the message that the friend had told, right? And so in a similar way, this voice appears to confirm Jesus. Then he goes on to say, verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So the judgment of this world. So uh, what's going on? So in the Gospel of John, the world, that phrase, isn't just about planet Earth. Uh, it's usually a reference to all those aspects, elements in society which are ungodly and which go against his reign of justice, truth, and love. And so it's all the sinful stuff in the world, sinful systems, sinful relationships, sin itself, uh, the presence of darkness. Jesus is bringing judgment of that. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Who's that? It's a reference to Satan, the one who, who, who governs and, and rules darkness, who will be cast out. Picture the cross. See the cross? Um, imagine it's stuck in the earth. Now imagine God reaching down from heaven and grabbing that top part of the cross and lifting it up like this. What does it look like? A sword. And it gets thrust through the heart of Satan. Deals him that death blow. Okay? Although he's still stumbling around, he has some limited energy. Christ is saying that through the cross, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, lifted up on the cross, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law, a general reference to the Old Testament, that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man, Jesus, must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Still having this conversation with them. He is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah, he said over and over again. Now, they say that, you know, you're talking about dying Jesus, being lifted up, but, but, but we've heard that the Christ remains forever, that he won't, in fact, die. 
What they don't realize is that he will die and then he will be risen. Are they referring to Daniel 7, Isaiah 9? We don't totally know. Regardless, Jesus replies, verse 35, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. The light, that's himself. I am the light of the world. For a little while longer, he's going to die soon. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Let's say that line together. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Let's say it again. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. See, the verb walk means proactive action. You're living in a certain way by faith in Jesus, lest so that the darkness won't overtake you, because it can. One more time. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light or children of light. Um, what, what a great inheritance. You know, what, what will you be? What will you inherit as a follower of Jesus? $34,000 from Grandma? Some sweaters, something, I don't know. How about uh, the light of Christ? <laughs> Beautiful inheritance. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so, uh, done so many signs before them, still they did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years earlier, might be fulfilled. And here he goes on to quote, uh, John goes on to quote Isaiah 53, uh, 610. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And so I think the inclusion of these passages here really are to tell us that there's no surprise some people will believe, but some won't, and that's not a surprise to the plans of God. Now, some people, close readers of the Bible, will say, this isn't fair. If God has hardened their hearts, they didn't have a, a fair chance. But, you know, as, as you study the scriptures and the passages around hardening of hearts, what we find is it's really kind of biblical language for um, God is simply letting people uh, make their own decision. If their heart is... Um, hardened towards him, if their heart is selfish, after a while, God will withdraw and leave them to their own devices, and thus their hearts will be hardened. A church father named Augustine said this. He says, God is letting alone and withdrawing his aid from those who reject him. After a while, God withdraws, lets them alone, and withdraws his aid after a time. Verse 42, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. The authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, right, the religious power brokers, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. How sad is this? These are people pleasers instead of God pleasers. They believe, but they don't want to upset the wrong people, right? Um... Imagine you trying, imagine you jumping off a bridge to impress the wrong people. How smart is that? Imagine jumping off a bridge to impress the wrong 
people. <clears throat> Verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me, referring to his heavenly Father. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So while on earth, his earthly ministry, Jesus' focus is on redemption, salvation, teaching the ways and love and peacefulness of God. And some of you are, are saying, well, wait a second, he's also judged, so isn't this a contradiction? No, it's not. Um, many of us grew up saying the Apostles' Creed, which is a summary of kind of succinct biblical truths. Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. So it, it has to do with what period we are talking about. The focus is on salvation, redemption while on earth, um, but later... When he returns, he will come as judge. And so it refers to the period, and that, that's alluded to in the next couple of lines. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. Okay. Verse 49, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. We end our look at the text there. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> our focus is on that verse 35. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness uh, overtake you. And uh, when I think of those first apostles, when they're in that situation, right, uh, what were they thinking of the time? Well, you know, they're with Jesus, they're walking with him, they know that things are getting more intense for him personally. Uh, he has been predicting his death, so, you know, some of them, maybe not all of them, have come to kind of wrestle with that fact. But they think, okay, he's, he's only physically going to be here, here with us a little while longer. But we today are looking at this text after that, after the resurrection, after the ascension, after a couple thousand years. And so we're going to focus on some things that are equally as relevant for us today. And the first is quite simply that darkness can overtake you. Darkness can overtake you. You know, there are um, profound double messages in children's books. You notice that? Uh, Robert Munch. Uh, we, we, we've read a lot of Robert Munch books over the years, and one is called The Dark. You know The Dark? And um, basically, there's this, uh, Julian is the protagonist. I, I guess he used that word in a... Robert Munch book, but anyway, Jewel Ann is there, and there's this, this, this darkness starts to swallow other shadows, and the dark gets bigger. It's called the dark noun. Bigger, bigger, bigger. It starts, take, it starts taking over the whole house, and it's over, and eventually it, it eclipses the sunlight, and the darkness takes over, and they can't see any light. I was talking with someone about a year, year and a half ago. Um, someone who at once said that they, they were a believer in Jesus. And it grieves my heart, the situation. And uh, they, they, <clears throat> they started to listen to a bunch of podcasts, which specifically, the purpose of these podcasts is specifically picking apart the Christian faith. The culture's getting more hostile all the time, by the way. Specifically pulling apart the Christian faith. And this person, she just listened to it uncritically. And don't get me wrong, it's good to question things, and it's good to listen to different points of view. I do it all the time. And, uh, and, and to find out what's going on, and you want to have a robust faith, so questions are good and all that stuff. But this person just passively drank this Kool-Aid 
And, all, and I listen to this stuff too. It all has credible good answers. Just drank this Kool-Aid, didn't do anything about it, and said, you know what, I, I don't believe in God anymore. I, don't, um, I can't trust the Bible, the church is man-made. See ya. That person's not here, that person's not watching. My soul grieves. Darkness can't overtake you. Second, <clears throat> the verb walk, which we find in this verse, the verb walk teaches us that living by faith in Jesus is active, not passive. Now, we just need to say that, right? Because quite often this is a biblical metaphor that comes along, and um, someone walks in the faith, and that means they're living, they're proactively, they're doing something. It applies motion. Right? And the reason I just need to stress this is because when we talk about faith and religion and spirituality, we can think it all has to do with kind of a frame of mind or things we think between our ears. And while it is that, it's not only that. Right? It implies a certain kind of living. Right? And, so, and if you really believe certain things, you are going to act in a different sort of way. A couple examples. If you think it's really cold outside, you will put on a jacket. If you think someone's trying to break into your house, you are going to lock the door. If you, see, if you believe that there's a car barreling down the road towards your kids who are out there not paying attention playing road hockey, you're going to go grab them or stop the car. You're going to do something about it. Right? And so if we actually believe the light, we will start to live differently as a result, and start doing the sorts of things Jesus does. Third, as Savior, God has already provided you with light locations. Light locations, okay? So this is quite, uh, this is quite simply a beautiful and life-giving thing that God does for his people, okay? So when you listen to a message like this, you can go through it and you can be, oh yeah, okay, I got to do this, this, this. Yes, we have to be proactive about certain things, Absolutely. But God has actually provided for us what I'm here affectionately calling light locations. He provides them for us, and we just need to expose ourselves to these things that he has already provided for us, whereby we can be in his light and be nurtured by that light and walk in it. Okay, so imagine, just like on that graphic, imagine kind of a nighttime view down upon the earth, and you can see certain areas that are lit up, right? Those are cities, those are clusters of, of light, and so if you need to see where you're going or something, you go to where the light is. And so that's what I'm referring to as light locations, and I'm just going to highlight some of them for you. And these are things that God has provided for us as his people because he loves us, and he wants us to walk in the light. Okay? Choir, you're kind of behind this, but just take my word for it, Okay? Light locations, okay? Prayer. Prayer is a light location. I'm trying to explain this as I go through, okay? You bow your head. To, actually, let me offer a reminder. Uh, about a month ago, I said, if you consider Westminster your church home, uh, to pray for your church, at least family, two minutes every day. And so maybe you're doing that faithfully. Thank you. Maybe you've forgotten. This is a reminder. Maybe you need a bit of a kickstart. Please do that, okay? Two minutes every day. All right, so prayer. When you fold your hands to pray for one minute or one hour, Satan and his minions who are invisibly around your house tear their hair out. Why? Because you are praying in the name of Jesus who has mortally wounded them on the cross, and they hate it. And when you do that, darkness takes a giant step back. 
Bible reading or Bible study, when you do that, what does it say in Psalm 119, verse 105? Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Light, light, light. You don't come across people who say, oh, I just spent half an hour reading the Bible. That was a waste of time. No, never happens. When you do this, something happens. Why? God has ordained this as a light location. And when you do that, darkness takes a giant step back. Communion, the sacraments, the Protestant tradition that many of us are from have downplayed the role of sacraments, communion and baptism. Jesus has given us communion. When we gather to do communion, we take the bread and we take the wine, we are dramatically acting out that death blow against the forces of evil in the world. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when you still your heart before the Lord and you dramatically act out and receive these elements, darkness takes a giant step back. You just need to show up or participate. Baptism happens once throughout someone's life, regardless of the age. But let me tell you, that is about our union with Jesus. And when we experience that, darkness takes a giant step back. Worship. Worship. This is so wonderful. We take this for granted. By the way, you know, 50, 60 years ago, so many people were in worship. Now it is not the thing to do. A recent survey came out about our religious attitudes and practices in Canada. Five to six percent of Canadians are in worship on a Sunday. Five to six percent. That is an alternative lifestyle. That is countercultural activity. People talk about, oh, this, this, is, this is alternative, and this is, you know, all these d- different ways of living. No, 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 all that's normal now. We're basically living in first century Rome. You go to worship and honor the Lord with, with singing, with prayers, with scriptural teaching, with encouragement, with learning upstairs and down. You are engaging in a countercultural activity. Satan hates it. And when you do that, darkness takes a giant step back. <clears throat> More light locations. Preaching is a light location. Biblical preaching is a light light location. And I want to say this because a lot of preachers don't talk about this because they don't want to sound like they're talking about themselves. Um, But I will because it's scriptural, okay? So preaching. you got to remember that uh, preaching is something that consistently happens in the Bible. Uh, After the Acts, so after the book of Acts, so the early church, for 1,700 years, most Christians did not have their own Bibles. 1,700 years, they didn't have their own Bibles. How did they learn about the stories? How did they learn about the instructions of God? Preaching. That was how. Now, I'm not saying this of, of all someone gets up and says something. If someone is trained for the task, if they're studious, if, if they're sincere and if they are prayerful, God uses it as a light location for the people of God. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, said in his commentary on Hebrews, he says, When preaching happens, it's like the blood of Jesus is falling on the congregation together with the words. Now, that's kind of freaky. The blood of Jesus, he means the sacrificial love of Jesus falls on the people together with the words. And I would say that the light of God falls on the congregation together with the words. And when you sit under preaching which is sincere, which is studious, and which is um, faithful, Darkness takes a giant step back. Fellowship. This is getting together with other believers. Could be in church, could be a small group, could be getting together with some of your friends for a coffee or something. Talking about the things of God. This is a light location. It buoys you, it sustains you. Now, I want to say that fellowship gets a bad rap because it's tough. 
God has provided this for his people, but it gets a bad rap. You know, we're this highly individual culture, uh, individualistic uh, people. Um, and recently I was talking with someone who said, I, I don't really believe in the church because uh, someone at a church said something uh, unkind to my husband a couple years ago. I don't believe in the church. Think, think of the ridiculousness of the statement. Uh, someone at a church said something unkind to my husband uh, a couple years ago, therefore I, I don't believe in the church. That's like saying, I didn't get good uh, service from a waitress in Saskatchewan, therefore all restaurants are bad. How ridiculous is that? And this is one of the things, we hear versions of this all the time, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a German martyr and theologian, uh, he was uh, executed by the Nazis in the closing days of World War II. He said, he said fellowship with God's people is training ground. It's a training ground. So you got people, some people you like, some people you don't like, some people you agree with, some people you don't agree with, all this sort of stuff, right? God puts us with groups of people who don't think all the same, we think some of the same things, who don't think all the same things of us, that we might train ourselves to love him and love one another and do unto others as you would have them do to yourselves. If you can't do that with a group of people in this training ground called fellowship, how are you going to do it in the world? We commit ourselves to this. As a light location, and darkness takes a giant step back. Serving and helping other people. This is a light location. This is volunteering. And so many of you do it so wonderfully here at the hospital or wherever, all these different places at schools and food banks, all this sort of stuff. It's a light location. When you are actively the hands and feet of Jesus, you bless others, and guess what? It feels good. This is a light location. It's not our idea. It was God's idea. Hey, do this. I'll provide all these opportunities. You just get close to the light, and guess what? Darkness takes a giant step back. When we show mercy towards others, Satan grumbles all the way home. Last one, Sabbath rest. You know, we're not very good at this. Um, Sabbath rest. Inhale, exhale. Inhale, exhale. The to-do list can wait a little while. God tells you to do that, and he provides you that light. And when you do that, darkness takes a giant step back. Let's end with this quote that we started from, from Frederick Buechner. Jesus shares with us the darkness of what it is to be without God, as well as showing forth the glory of what it is to be with God. We thank him for that. Friends, darkness can overtake you. Two, the verb walk teaches us that living by faith in Jesus is active, not passive. Third, as Savior, God has already provided you with light locations. Get close to them often. Jesus said, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And that is my prayer for all of us. Amen.